Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. There is so much we can do to make this world a kind of better, happier place. There is so much we can do to change the world. If you want to support It's Good to Know and the work of Rabbi Manus Friedman, please visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support to join the community. Last week, we heard part one of Rabbi Manus Friedman's talk with Rabbi Chase Taub. Here's part two. Sanctification of the physical. Which, if you think about it, is a funny concept because sanctity is, is an idea. So that belongs in the world of ideas. That, that's almost inherently a spiritual phenomenon. Sanctity is a spiritual phenomenon. Or a divine phenomenon. Uh, how, how, would you, how would you distinguish between spiritual and divine? Well, spiritual is easier than divine because spiritual just has to be non-physical. So anything that's abstract is already spiritual. Um, you know, happiness is spiritual. Satisfaction or like, uh, you know, pleasure those things are our sensations. Those are of the body. But something like happiness, it's spiritual, which is why human beings can't just be content with taking care of their physical needs. So that's, that's, that's spiritual. The fact that a person needs a higher purpose to live for, that's spiritual. Divine is a lot more demanding than that. Divine means um, that there has to be complete surrender. What does it mean when it says the Lord your God is a consuming fire? If you want to get close to fire, there's only one way this is going to go down. (laughs) You're not going to take off a piece of the fire and walk away with it. You touch the fire, it's going to take a piece of you. And if you keep touching it, it's eventually going to take all of you. And you're not going to be gone. You're just going to become part of the fire. Viktor Frankl said, that which is to give light must endure burning. You become part of the light. So the divine really is about surrender. Or like it says in chapter 6 of Tanya, that, that holiness which means divinity, because there's spirituality that's not holy. It's still spiritual, it's just not holy. It says over there that holiness is basically um, selflessness. The more surrendered you are, then the more, the more holy you are. I think another way of saying it is that there are three possibilities. The physical means it's all about me. The spiritual is, it's not about me. The divine is that it's about him. So the physical can be immoral. The spiritual can be immoral or amoral. But the divine is always moral. So we can be ourselves, like we were saying before, 
just the way we were created, human being being human, or we can be something more than human, or we can be divine, God-like. So the difference between the divine and the spiritual is greater than the difference between the spiritual and the physical. Which might be what the Torah is telling us when it says, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. He created the physical and the spiritual. They have something in common. But he is unique. So being spiritual is not necessarily getting closer to the divine. And I guess that's why we need the mitzvahs to know what he is about. To know that it's not about me is rather obvious. But how do we know what he's about? So we're talking about ideas that can change the world. What, what is the human, what is the human psyche? You're, I think you've written a book about it, haven't you? Probably. Understanding human drives, human needs, human... Yeah. yeah. Is there a unique Jewish approach or Torah approach to human psychology? What, what is, I don't know if it's uniquely Jewish, because to make that claim, I would have to know what everyone else believes. But I can tell you that what Judaism believes about the way a human being thinks, what Judaism believes about what makes a human being tick, that in my experience, you just don't hear enough of in the world around us today, is, well, pretty much what you said at the beginning of our conversation, which is that a human being is not content just to be as they are. And then there are various degrees to which differing individuals are discontent with just being as they are. But those are the details. The general statement is the human being is not content just to be as they are. And yet... We are so addicted to ourselves and are so unwilling to give up anything to make changes, to uh, leave room for others. So what, what is this dichotomy here? Yeah. I don't want to be me, but I got to be me. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the... The animalistic part of the person survival mechanism which has to continue at all costs even without a purpose to, to live for there's this part of us that just um, wants to continue to perpetuate its own existence even without a purpose or maybe more correctly stated even if that's the only purpose the only purpose is Self-perpetuation for the sake of self-perpetuation. That's, that's the animalistic drive. Then the human drive, which uh, is in conflict, in direct conflict with that, with that 
animalistic drive is that purpose is so important, I'd even give up some of myself in order to get it. So you see where the, where the conflict comes in. Maybe it need not be a conflict. I am addicted to myself, and I am willing to give up some of that if I could get something better. Oh, now you're just bartering. That's just trading. No, that's not giving up. That's just making an exchange. It's like the human being is not content being human. Well, what is being human? The survival instinct. But I'm not content with my survival instinct. But that's so not... I know I have it. That's a part yet. You have it. You have the survival instinct. You have a survival instinct, but that's not what makes you uniquely human. Right. So even my needs, I am willing to give up to become something more than human. Yeah, that's right. By the way, this is the machlekes of Maslow and uh, of Frankel. Because Maslow had the hierarchy of needs, you know, the pyramid. And he'll say that until you have your basic needs met, you know, most basic needs, you got to breathe, right? Then once you can breathe, let's talk about where we're going to have lunch. And then once you have what to eat, let's talk about you have shelter. Where are you going to sleep tonight? And then after you meet all those needs, then we'll talk about do you have friends? And then finally, you know, the very tip top, do you have a hobby? Do you have something interesting going on in life? And, and, and Frankel said the, the exact opposite, that a person could actually die from a lack of meaning. He inverted the triangle, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, I would, not just that I would forgo my, my physical needs in order to have meaning, but that if I'm human, I need to do that. Not just I'm willing to do it. I need to. So who's, te who's teaching that? Where do we get this message? You need to be more than your needs. Is this part of common education? Is this how we raise children? No, no, no. Absolutely not. There is no moral education. Um, you know... You know I was talking to a group of young people recently, and I mentioned something, and uh, this young lady asked me, well, how do you know that? And I said, well, if I'll tell you I know it from the Torah, then I'm not going to say that because A, that's just, it's not fighting fair, because then you can't even answer anything to me. I'm just, I'm invoking God. B, I'm not going to say it to you because I don't think it's satisfying to you. So. How about if I tell you that it's logical? And she said, um, well, it's not scientific. I said, yeah, I didn't say it was. I said it was logical. And she had a real difficult time with that statement. It's not scientific, it's logical. She thought they were synonymous. So you know that expression, when all you have is a hammer every problem looks like a nail. So the Enlightenment came along and gave us the scientific method, which is a really nifty tool for learning things about our universe.
you run experiments and you test them out and you see what happens. And it's a nice way to learn about how things work. But it's certainly not the only tool for learning about reality. And not only is it not the only tool, but there are certain aspects of reality that science is useless as a tool to, to learn about. Um, what, what science is good for is empirical stuff, stuff that, of the phenomenological universe, you know, the world of our five senses. Science really is, and it wouldn't be fair to hold science to this uh, expectation because not, it, it's not, it doesn't purport, it doesn't claim to be able to do this. It doesn't uh, hold itself out there to be able to determine uh, anything that's abstract. Right? You can't run a scientific experiment to determine what's right and what's wrong. Those are abstract concepts, right and wrong, or, or even beautiful and ugly. Those are abstract concepts. You can determine if it's heavy or if it's light, if it's tall or short, hot or cold, things that are, that are physical, fast or slow. So logic is actually um, a tool that people used to learn, and it's within the realm of philosophy. Because we use philosophy for learning about reality in ways that science cannot help us. So science came along and gave us a good tool, but it didn't replace philosophy, or it was never meant to, to replace philosophy. Um, but what happened is people started to see science as the only way of knowing about the world around us. And what happened is once, once you only use a tool that can only tell you about the physical universe, so after a few generations of that, there is only a physical universe. We, we, we do not teach philosophy. I'm not even making, making an argument right now that we don't teach enough Jewish philosophy. We don't teach enough Jewish ways of, of understanding morality. I'm saying that basically it's not the part of anyone's education today to be able to think abstractly about values. So, for instance, I'll give you a, a real uh, brute expression of this dearth of abstract thinking. This dearth of philosophical thinking. When the kid in the Cincinnati Zoo fell into the gorilla exhibit a couple years ago, and they shot the silverback gorilla, Harambe, <clears throat> why were people up in arms? Because how dare you kill this animal in favor of a child? That is a great example of a reductionist worldview it's based on abject materialism. Want to know why? A guy told me a human being and a baboon have 95% the same, same DNA. And he thought it would, I don't know, make me rethink my whole... Ancestry. Right. <laughs> but you know what? I'm fine with that. In fact, if you would tell me the human being and a baboon have 100% the same DNA, it doesn't really shake me up too much. Because the difference between a human being and a baboon, to me, is not about... The physical, the, the shell, the container, 
I mean, let's be really grim. If you would show me a piece of cow meat under the cellophane in the butcher shop and some baboon meat and some human meat, I promise you, I, 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 I would not know the difference. So if you compare the meat, it's all the same to me. What's different is the spiritual value, the function, the purpose. So the purpose of a little boy is incomparable to the purpose of a silverback gorilla. So when one is threatening the other, you remove the one without question. Not even a moral dilemma. There's no ethical dilemma. If there were two people and one was threatening the other and you had to decide, that's, that's a difficult decision. But an animal and a human being, not, not, even, a, not even a dilemma. But how did it become a dilemma? Because... The world today only knows what it can touch, only knows what it can physically experience. You know the story, the famous story about when the, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe was being interrogated and uh, one of the uh, communists pointed a gun at him and he said, that little toy is effective on people who have one world and many gods, but I have one God and two worlds. So I finally, I, I had a hunch about this for a while. It didn't just mean, you know, if you kill me, I'll go to heaven. I saw the Rebbe tell the story, and the Rebbe said that he didn't mean one world after the, the, after the next. He meant two worlds concurrently. Who was the previous Rebbe speaking to? He was speaking to a, a communist, Marxist. Marxism is dialectical materialism. That's what it's called. It's basically the belief that there's nothing but the physical world. And the prime mover of everything in history and all human motivation is physical. Physical resources. Economics. That's all there is. Cultural Marxism is the belief that the human being and the animal are ultimately the same. There's one world, just the material universe, just the world of things, no world of ideas. In fact, the only idea that exists for the dialectical materialists, he has one idea that he does believe in. The idea that it's important, very important, to the point where you have to remove anybody who thinks any differently, it's very important to defend the fact that there are no ideas, there are only things. There's only the physical. That's why it's atheistic, there's no heaven, there's no God, there's no judgment. It's the opiate of the masses, because it's distracting us from the only reality. The only reality is the physical world. So we live today in a society where people are incapable of thinking philosophically the point where this girl thought that science and logic are the same thing. When do I use logic? When I'm talking about ideas. If I were talking about things, I wouldn't need logic. I would just go run an experiment. So human intelligence exists primarily for abstract thinking. Uniquely human intelligence, that's right. What makes us more intelligent than animals is not that we're better at finding food. 
or building houses? There's, there's this um, amazing statement in, uh, in the Gemara. You are conceived against your will. You are born against your will. You live against your will. And you die against your will. What, what, what kind of a psyche is that describing? How does, that, how does that fit with what we think today of a human being? Sounds, sounds somewhat depressing. Maybe humbling. But I, I'm born against my will, I live against my will? Well, if I'm having a miserable time, maybe. But why is that a simple fact? That no matter what kind of life I have, it's against my will. Or what do you say to a kid who says, I didn't ask to be born. Didn't ask to be born. Nobody does. <laughs> You're born against your will. You live against your will. Whether you want to or not. That doesn't fit with anybody's psychology, does it? It's not Freudian. It's not young. And yet it seems so fundamentally Jewish. God created the world because he had a, a pleasure or a passion. The world did not start with my need or with my desire. So I don't need to be born. This is not my plan. I don't need to be here, and that's why I don't ask to be born, because I don't need it. So if I don't need to be born, how, how serious, how significant can my need for money be? I don't even need to be here. So it's a little funny. The kid says, I don't need to be here. I didn't ask to be born, so where's my ice cream? <laughs> well, then you don't get an ice cream because you don't need anything. It would only be exacerbating the problem. That's right. You don't want to be here, so why should we enhance your being here? We should put you in a sensory deprivation chamber. Yeah. I need to be heard. No, you don't even need to be here. So... How do we make a life out of, that, out of that fact? How do you live with that fact? You didn't ask to be here. You don't need to be here. So, right. so get a life? Right. <laughs> so it makes so much sense. I am here to serve my creator. I mean, just connect the dots. If I didn't ask to be born, if I don't need to be born, and didn't even want to be born, and yet I'm here, there must be a reason outside of me. So the logical conclusion is, somebody needs me, and I'm here to serve that need. That could actually be quite liberating. Unburdening.
So if it's not about me, it's so much easier to live. Which is, you know, a simple fact of life. If you don't take yourself so seriously, you enjoy life more. Somebody once said to me, I came to the realization that my opinion of my own life is irrelevant. And that was good news. Yeah. He wasn't suicidal. No, no, no. The saying was great. My opinion of my life is pretty irrelevant. He didn't say his life was irrelevant. He said his opinion of it. That, that, take, that deserves a little thought. And it doesn't get a lot of play. You know, you very seldom hear a rabbi give a sermon about the fact that you're born against your will, you live against your will, you die against your will. And yet it's so, it's so fundamental. And it's such good news. So let, let's, let's rephrase this. <clears throat> From the negative, one can infer a positive. So if it's not my will to be here, let's start with that. What's the, what's the implication? What, you, you could say, it's not an expression of any will. You're here randomly. Well, the first thing it tells me is that my existence is not self-justifying. I don't need this. I don't want this. It's not, it's not necessary for me. Right, but you understand that the animal soul, the survival instinct, is based on that unquestioned axiom that I exist for the sake of continuing my own existence. Which I now know isn't true. Right, but it doesn't help me to know that the entire axiom upon which my animal soul, my survival mechanism is built upon, is, is, is philosophically unsound. I know it to be untrue. It doesn't change the fact that that drive is just as real. Yeah. But it also means I got to find some justification. So... We, we could say, there is no justification. It's not your will. It's nobody's will. Now you're getting depressing. <laughs> that is depressing. That's true. Now it's not liberating anymore. No. No, it's just... It's bleak. Yeah. Or you could say, it's not your will, but it is the expression of will, not your will. A higher will. Higher will. Okay, so then hold on a second. I didn't ask to be here. In fact, now that you're asking, I'll pass. And yet, someone else's will compels me to exist. How is that fair? By the way, you know who I hear this question from? This is a real question I hear. I hear it a lot from Lubavitcher kids because you, you wouldn't hear this question from anyone else other than Lubavitcher because you'd first have to really understand that 
we're all here because of Hashem's taiva, because Hashem has this will, <clears throat> this desire. You know, if you were educated elsewhere in Judaism, you might think that we're here so that God can reward us. So then you would never ask, well, I didn't ask for this. But once you realize, no, you're here because he wants it, then you have the next question is, well, hold on a second, because he wants it? I have to be inconvenienced because he wants it? And not only that, but you just told me five minutes ago that I don't even have to get what I want. You just told me I don't have to get what I want. In fact, you argued it logically. Since I don't even have to be here, I certainly don't have to get what I want. But he does. He has to get what he wants. So you see that the, the, the absolute contradiction and how unfair that could feel? Because I think we have to acknowledge how unfair that feels. And that I think it's an unavoidable question. In fact, I would say somebody who hasn't yet asked that question is missing out. I think you have to have that question. And the answer? What's the answer? The answer is that the difference between me and God, you see, I have desires and he has desires. You're assuming there's a difference. Well, this, this one I can pretty safely argue. All of his desires are for the sake of heaven. See, I have a lot of desires that are selfish and uh, petty. But all of his desires are for the sake of heaven. Meaning for his own sake. Yeah, so then you have a new question, which is, hold on a second, but he is heaven. Right. <laughs> all of his desires are for the sake of heaven, but he is heaven. So he's selfish. Then I have to define what's wrong with being selfish. Because I know that's one of the things I've been taught is that it's wrong to be selfish. I got to figure out what's wrong about it. Okay, so is God selfish? Yes. And that's okay? Not only it's okay, it's wonderful. Because? His self is a different kind of self. Therefore, it's a different kind of selfish. What's different about his self than myself? You know, the Rambam says, what's God? We can't even describe God. But one thing we can say is he's absolute existence. He doesn't depend on anything to exist. He just is. So he has to exist. He has to be here. If you can think of a God concept and then for a moment entertain that concept not existing, you are not thinking of God. God has to exist. Whatever else you say about him, he is. He has to be. There's no such thing as him not being. So then certainly, yeah, he has to get what he wants. I don't have to exist. So certainly, I don't have to get what I want. When I'm being selfish, it's wrong because I'm making a statement that's not even true. 
When he's selfish, that is the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is that not only he is what he is, but that he gets everything that he desires. That's the ultimate truth. So what, what's the negative side of selfishness? Why, why is selfish inappropriate? Myself. Selfishness is cruel. I'm being cruel to myself. How so? Because it's not true. I don't have to get what I want. And selfishness convinces me that I do. So it's a lie that I've told myself. Or another way of saying it is, if you're living in somebody else's house, how can you be selfish? But if it's your house, and you do what you want in your house, you're not being selfish. Or it's appropriate to be selfish. So for a human being to be selfish is objectionable because for God, this is his house. So you come to somebody's house and he gives you a five-course meal and you say, where's the sixth course? He says, we don't have one. So you're so selfish. <laughs> he's not being selfish, he's being himself. Yeah, but we could, we, I could still push back on that and say, maybe he should be hospitable. Maybe he should, of course, it's his house. He has every right. But let him be more hospitable. Be, yeah, let him be more hospitable. Why not? We have to say. And, and we do demand it. <laughs> We're always demanding that. Give me more, give me more. But, you know, demand it politely. My, my, my question is, what would be so wrong if God were not to try to always get what he wants? Would that be so wrong? I'm asking a real question. Would it be so terrible if he wouldn't try to always get what he wants in the end? Does he always get what he wants? In the end, he always gets what he wants. He will. In the end, it's his house. That just means he has the right to get what he wants in the end. I want to know, would it be so wrong to not get what he wants in the end? Yeah. I agree. Because? Because he is absolute existence. He has to exist. And he has to get what he wants. And it would be a terrible thing for him not to get what he wants. Why would that be terrible for me? For you? You already have to be very sensitive to appreciate whether or not it would be good for you. I'm speaking on a more lofty level. No, I'm thinking I'm only here because he wants something. If he doesn't have to get what he wants, then I'm disposable. So if he's giving me a job, and then it turns out that he doesn't need that job done, I'm a little offended. Uh -huh. <laughs> right. So if his need is not absolute, and I'm here to fulfill his need, and then he changes his mind or something and says, yeah, right, I don't really need it so much, 
But what does that do to me? They used to have a torture in the British prisons up until like 100 years ago. It's called the crank. A guy sits in a prison cell doing the crank and it has a counter. And you have to do like a thousand of these cranks a day. And uh, they're told there's a mill or something on the other side of the wall. And then on the last day of their sentence, after 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is, they take the guy out of his cell, they show him the other side of the wall. And the crank's not hooked up to anything. Some people would lose their minds. Some people would die. I heard, I heard a similar example of a guy who was working out in the fields, cutting the wheat with a, with a scythe. What does it call this? So, yeah. And it's hot, and he's sweating, and he's complaining. So the owner comes and says, I'm sorry to make your work that hard. Come indoors. It's really cool. And just go through the motion of scything. <laughs> you know? And after a couple of minutes of that, he said, you know what? Let me go out there and really cut something. Right. Yeah. So, yes, it would be devastating if God's needs were not absolute. And where does he get this use out of you? When you are in a body in the physical world. When the idea of you meets the thing of you. Because it's not enough that your soul, you know, why are there 613 commandments? Because there's 613 limbs of the soul. Well, even without a body. Right? The body is set up to, to match the soul. But even without a body, the soul already has some connection to all those mitzvahs, spiritual way. But that's like a man saying to a woman, let's get married. I have my house, you have your house. Why do we have to share a house? We just share love. <laughs> They'll probably get into less fights, by the way. Yeah. That's a marriage that can last forever. They can write each other letters. Mental telepathy. Yep. No arguments about who left the cap off the toothpaste. Yeah. Okay. Um, what do we do next session? <laughs> Figure out how to say this in simple language that people who are not used to thinking abstractly can understand. Okay. Let's also talk about the Torah. What exactly is it? Where does it fit? Huh? You're religious? I thought it was good enough we talk about God, but now you want to talk about the Torah, it means you're religious. There's a Bible, we got to do something with it. So who was it who said, uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you can't call yourself educated? Some famous person said that. It just, it's, a, it's a truism. Every educated person was, was biblically literate. Yeah. About the same time, people stopped studying philosophy. They also stopped studying the Bible. Very good. We should have good news. Amen. Only good news. Amen. And um, 
everything with the property and the house and the money you should owe. This is what took my mind off of it for a while. Sorry to bring it back up. Yeah. <laughs> Zeig isn't. You're well. Bye-bye. If you want to support It's Good to Know in the work of Rabbi Manus Friedman, please visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support to join the community. This is the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, changing your life for the better, one idea at a time. Like it, share it, and leave us a review. Tune in next week for more ideas that change the world. Let's change the world.